Hello and welcome to Sound Strategic, the podcast of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. I'm Maya Nowens. Today we will examine the recent developments in Japan, looking in particular at how the COVID pandemic has affected the country's economy, domestic politics, and strategic policy in the midst of US-China rivalry. Joining me are two of my colleagues from the IISS Japan Chair Program, based in London. Robert Ward is the Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy and the IISS Japan Chair. Yuko Koshino is the Research Fellow for Jap Japanese Security and Defense Policy, and her research focuses on Japan's foreign relations, security and defense policy, and economic statecraft. Welcome, Yuka and Robert. Hello, Maya. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Robert, let's talk about the domestic situation in uh, Japan first. We heard last month that Japan lifted its nationwide state of, state of emergency, and it would seem like the country is slowly returning to some sort of normalcy. Can you take us through how COVID has impacted the Japanese economy in particular? Of course, a uh, very good question to start with, because Japan's really facing uh, quite significant headwinds uh, this year, as, as indeed, of course, are many other countries. One important thing to uh, to note, however, is that Japan went into this crisis already pretty much in recession. Uh, that's largely the result of the consumption tax increase that um, the Prime Minister Abe Shinzo pushed through uh, in October uh, last year. And of course, as with tax rises uh, e everywhere, but particularly in Japan, um, there is always a, a fall off in consumption after, after the tax is, uh, is, is increased. So Japan went into this um, with a weak economy um, and of course, this has hit uh, the economy for six, uh, the pandemic has. So in, in some, um, in, in this year, Japan in 2020, Japan's going to have probably the worst, deepest recession that it's had since the end of the um, Second World War. Um, unfortunately, the outlook for 2021 is not particularly good either. Um, and I think it's fair to say that uh, it isn't really going to be until 2022 that the economy uh, sort of manages to re regain um, some of the ground it lost in the um, recession of, um, of 2020. And how has this affected domestic politics in Japan? I think just last month, the Asahi Shinbun put PM uh, Prime Minister Abe's approval rating at just 29%. Yes, I mean, what, what a lot has changed for um, the Prime Minister. A year ago, he was looking at the, 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 the political scene, the economy, and thinking, I'll have that tax increase. It'll have a negative impact, but then we'll have the Olympics to rev up to. Great for consumption, fantastic for tourism. Um, and then I'll be able to think, do I want that unprecedented fourth term as LDP leader and extend my premiership? And of course, in just the space of a few uh, months, that has all completely changed. Um, as you said, Maya, the, the opinion polls pretty much all point in the same direction, which is, which is downwards. Now, in part... Um, I think that's just a, an, in, an effect of, um, of Abbey fatigue. Uh, the prime minister has been around for, just for so long, particularly by the standards of uh, Japan's prime ministers. Abbey 2.0, so his second term, started at the end of 2012. So this is a long time he's been there. This is one of the sort of falling popularity is one of the, the costs of power, holding power for, for so long. Um, but... Unfortunately for him, there isn't really anything positive that he can point to in terms of the economy, I suspect. Um, certainly over the short term, certainly into 2021, as we've said, it's going to be a, a quite a slow recovery for, uh, for Japan economically. What's the likelihood he will win a, th a fourth term? Well, this, this was the question that was, was sort of, was, had all of Japan's um, 
political watchers a flutter, uh, certainly last year, because he did look, I mean, he ups and downs, of course, like all leaders, but he looked pretty pretty strong. And, of course, the opposition is, is, is pretty much perennially, perennially weak uh, in Japan. Um, so I thought l- th- uh, last year the odds were sort of fairly even that, that, that he might, if he wanted it, have a, have a go. Of course, Abe is also a great, well, if not the greatest, uh, Trump whisperer. So one of the, the ideas uh, was that if Trump won in November, this would be very good for Abe potentially trying to stay on because he, he knows how to, how to charm Trump like no other uh, leader of a, of a big country. But this now, I think, um, given the problems with the economy, given the sort of fatigue that uh, I think a lot of the voters have uh, with, with Mr. Abe, um, and given the lack of um, optimism, I think, in certainly over the short term into 2021, and, and presumably as well the uncertainties that are lingering over the Olympics uh, for next year, I, I suspect that um, the calculus will be how to, how to um, achieve a, um, a smooth handover of power uh, to these to a successor who can then prepare for the next general election which is um, which is in uh, ha- must be held by October 2021 so also equally turbulent I think um, from what I've seen in the news is uh, Japan's security environment at the moment Yuka can you take us through what this what this looks like um, so COVID-19 has definitely increased uncertainties in the region um, to the already existing security challenges and risks um, around Japan and in the Indo-Pacific region um, as a whole. So um, when other countries were starting to deal with its domestic health and economic crisis, China has been relatively improving its domestic situation. We've seen how China has grew much more assertive um, in maritime, like around the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea in Japan, there's more vessels intruding the Japanese territorial waters and the contingency areas, and then more activities in the South China Sea. We're also seeing some challenges in cyberspace as more not just the militaries, but also the civilians' um, activities are moving into the digital um, domain. And there has been an increasing reported case on cyber attacks, um, potentially from um, state-sponsored attacks. At the same time, the pandemic also exposed vulnerabilities in the existing deterrence that has been the cornerstone of um, peace and stability in the region. So one of the prominent example is um, when there was the COVID-19 outbreak on the U.S. aircraft carrier, USS Theodore Roosevelt. So it has negatively impacted the new um, operational concept of dynamic force employment in the region. And um, not only that, but there's uh, has been some suspensions on joint exercises and uh, more uh, limited contacts between the militaries in between U.S. and Japan and U.S. and its allies and uh, Japan and other um, forces in the region. The focus on security priorities in, in um, Japan and the U.S. on the Indo-Pacific theater hasn't changed. So we won't um, expect a significant change in the defense spending in the region. But um, I think it's fair to say that the, there's a... Um, security challenges um, from the COVID-19 in the region. So Yuka, you've mentioned tensions with China over the Senkakus, but of course there's also increased tension on the Korean Peninsula of late. Um, We've seen recently in uh, Japanese news reporting that Japan has halted the deployment of the Aegis Ashore missile defense system with Japan's defense minister Taro Kono citing technical issues and the high cost of rectifying them. I was wondering whether you could unpack this a little bit for us. Did the economic downturn as a result of COVID play a role here? 
or were other factors more important? And how does this affect Japan's ability to secure its national security interests? I think I would stress that the installment of the Aegis Resource System has already been a lot of difficulties, especially facing a lot of local opposition from the beginning. So when we go back to around 2017, when the discussions um, started, it was time when there was a lot of um, challenges, nuclear challenges and ballistic missile challenges from North Korea and the decision to install the Aegis or source system, two systems in Yamaguchi Prefecture and um, Akita Prefecture to enhance the ballistic missile defense systems. But over time, um, the, the costs have increased and also the North Korean threats has also diversified. So not just the ballistic missiles, but um, now there's the submarine launch missiles and short range missiles. So this decision announced by Minister Kono will definitely spark a new discussion in Japan, again, about how Japan wants to deal with its uh, missile threats from neighboring countries. Robert, did you have something to add? I did. Um, Yuka made a very important point about um, Japan's fiscal uh, fiscal capabilities, fiscal capacity, and the need to spend on on social spending. And of course, you know this um, pandemic it will it will really stretch Japan's already creaky uh, public finances. Even before this uh, this uh, pandemic um, downturn, uh, Japan's public debt stock to GDP was about two hundred and thirty percent. I mean, that's the, uh, very very high indeed. Um, just to give you a sort of a, um, a comparison, we, we worry in Europe when our debt stock goes over 100% of GDP, as in many countries it will, uh, but Japan's already over 200%. And of course, after the, all, the, all the stimulus measures and everything that Abe is quite rightly uh, trotting out, this will push the, uh, the debt stock up even further beyond uh, 250% of GDP. So over the, the medium term, I think there are real constraints on on what Japan will be able to spend its money on, despite interest rates being really low, of course. Um, and the, the pressure will be on fiscal reform even more um, as, we, as we stretch out into the 2020s. Maybe looking uh, a little bit further into the regional um, uh, landscape, the deployment of Aegis Ashore was also meant to further integrate U.S. and Japan's ballist military ballistic missile defense assets. Um, but I was wondering whether the U.S.-Japan alliance uh, has been um, changed, uh, altered, strengthened, or weakened during uh, Trump's first term, and and where you really see um, uh, where you really place the alliance um, in light and in light of heightened tensions with China. Um, so actually, U.S. and Japan alliance has been um, continued to be strengthened under the Trump administration. So even before the Trump administration, the real milestone for the U.S.-Japan alliance was the 2015 upgrade of the U.S.-Japan security cooperation, which basically try to um, improve what they can do under the alliance um, seamlessly, covering new areas like space and cyberspace. But first of all, um, the President Trump and Prime Minister Abe had a very good personal relationship that has been able to um, strengthen its diplomatic and security um, relation between the two countries. But also in the recent example, it's the 2019 2 plus 2, um, the foreign ministers and, and defense ministers meeting. Um, the U.S. emphasized that um, any state-sponsored cyber attacks on Japan would also be responded uh, under the U.S.-Japan alliance, which is a very big statement to in ensure the deterrence. Another area that um, I, I have been very interestingly following is the U.S.-Japan um, space cooperation. Japan, for instance, established a new space situational awareness system, which will continuously monitor any kind of anti-satellite capabilities 
or any space debris um, in space. But what it's really trying to do is to strengthen information sharing between the United States and um, really enhance the interoperability in space um, domain as well. And Japan is also set to host a U.S. sensor system in one of its satellites that will be launched in the next um, in mid twenties. So that really shows how str um, strong the defense cooperation between the two countries is. So um, I would say that it, it actually has become much more stronger under um, in the in the past several years. So I asked the question because under Trump's first term, um, I think a number of allies have come under the radar uh, and under the in the spotlight uh, by this U.S. administration for either not um, not paying their share of the burden for the alliance, uh, for uh, needing to step up to the plate. Have we seen similar requests uh, of Japan by this Trump administration? Yes, that, that's actually a, a good um, <laughs> a good um, point to make and what I, I, I thought I would add um, to my previous comments. Um, but there are definitely some risks in the, in the bilateral relations as well. So what we are going to see um, from now on is the, the negotiation, and that will start from summer autumn between the U.S. and Japan on the cost of um, hosting U.S. bases in, in Japan. And as we've seen in the in the South Korea and United States, so the United States, the Trump administration basically asked for four times larger the funding than previously used to, and Japan is definitely closely watching um, this negotiation. They're probably concerned about what kind of um, request does the President Trump will make. Other areas that that's worth watching is what Japan is going to decide on its um, next generation fighter project whether it's going to cooperate, pursue a domestic development, or whether it's going to cooperate in certain areas with US or UK. Right, I mean, Robert, then can I ask if the United States is going to potentially request four times the amount of um, uh, money spent by Japan uh, for this defense relationship, um, can Japan afford that? So I think clearly there's going to be lots of um calculations going into you know, to what Japan will will offer and what it can afford uh, and 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 so on um, but the, I think the key point here is that uh, I think Yuka made it was is that you know for the for Japan the US is the critical um, security partner ally and this is this is the found the US is the foundation of uh, of Japan's uh, security posture so Abe, um, as we've said has put a lot of effort into into whispering Trump charming him um, trying to get him on side. Obviously, it doesn't always work, as as all the allies have found. Trump is is mercurial, to to say the least. But I think Abe will be very focused, or whoever is in power in the coming years, uh, very focused on um, on on doing what it has to do uh, to keep uh, to keep the U.S. Uh, on on board, and also to just to keep the keep the the, um, the systems, the military systems, and the technology aligned um, as as much as as much as possible. The other thing, of course, is that Japan is, like many countries now, stuck between China and the U.S. So China, as indeed for many countries in Asia, China is Japan's largest export market, uh, its largest provider of tour inbound tourism in, in, into Japan pre-pandemic. Uh, um, so, uh, But the, the important thing here, to I think, to understand is that 
even though Japan's stuck between these two, as many countries are now, uh, this is this is um, what this Japan is used to navigating this. Uh, this has been the case for Japan for many many years now. So it's a difficult situation uh, for Japan to cope with. Um, but this is a situation that Japan has dealt with for many years, albeit in in different shapes and sizes. Right. I mean, I think in the last year we've seen that balancing take place before our eyes that Japan has sided with the United States and banning the integration of Huawei equipment into the country's 5G network. But on the other hand, we've also seen last year that Japan seemed to be a little bit more open, perhaps to limited participation uh, in China's Belt and Road Initiative in one form or another. Um, so how should we how should we view the Japan-China relationship at the moment? I think it's it's always been sort of pragmatic at best, um, but resting on sort of shards of glass uh, for all sorts of reasons. Almost obviously, the, his, the sort of differences over history, although that seems to have um, have have ebbed uh, for now. But it, it is a pragmatic relationship, and Japan is trying to, as as I just said, trying to to manage the U.S. Um, its its interests with the U.S. and its interests uh, with with China. Um, but I think, as you've just pointed out, that uh, that th- its formulation of policy with regard to how it is um, viewing uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative, for for example, um, is evidence of that um, of that pragmatism. And, w- and while Japan won't ever openly go and come out and say, "Yes, we are um, we are uh, um, trying to contain Belt and Road, contain China," because obviously. In, even though Japan's big, I mean, it's not nearly as big as China, so to contain China is very difficult. What it is trying to do, I think, within this um, pragmatism is to offer an alternative, particularly in, in Asia, an, an alternative uh, to China and to, to help smaller countries, not to help them feel they don't necessarily have to bandwagon um, with, with China, to, to show that there is an alternative in Asia to China. So it's a very sort of delicate balance, if you, sort of delicate choreography, if you like, trying to keep on board with the US, trying to be pragmatic with China, but also trying to be a balancer, uh, particularly, uh, particularly within Asia. And it's, it's a very difficult uh, sort of complex set of diplomatic moves. Right. And Yuka, I know that you've been looking at this a little bit um, since moving to London and starting at the IISS. Um, who are Japan's new partners in its free and in open Indo-Pacific uh, vision? Um, I know that it's not only working with the Quad, but also with the European Union. I think we've recently seen statements that Taiwan is a sincere friend and, and, a, and a cooperative partner for Japan. So how do you see greater cooperation taking place between these actors since COVID? During the first wave of COVID-19, um, there were a lot of um, kind of uncertainties about how much co-op- room of multilateral cooperation there could be, um, and uh, a lot many countries were um, focused domestically. But um, first, first of all, I, I, I want to point out that even in that situation, Japan actually tried to provide financial and diplomatic support um, to regional co- countries to counter COVID-19 and the growing Chinese influence in the region. I would also like to emphasize this remained very low-key and subtle, um, probably because of the domestic situation. But if you actually closely look at the supplemental budget, um, there's, for instance, MOFA has funded about 84 billion yen, which is around 800 million US dollars to support responses in countries like even in the Middle East and Asia. And the Japan International Cooperation Agency has also allocated around like 200 billion Japanese 
yen, about two billion USD, um, for COVID-19 emergency government-backed yen loans. And since June, it started providing these loans to uh, regional countries like Myanmar and Philippines. And also in the more diplomatic scene, um, it also demonstrated, uh, tried to demonstrate certain leadership role in the regional multilateral institutions like the ASEAN Plus Three Summit. Um, so there it proposed to set up, for instance, a center for emerging disease and public health institution, or it tried to emphasize the transparent exchange of real-time information when seemed like the, the world was discussing how China has lacked transparency over the situation on COVID-19. But um, if I could make some point about um, what happened after the first wave, I, I think Maya's point is right about how there's more growing momentum for cooperation um, between Tokyo's regional partners like the Quad countries, but also beyond the Indo-Pacific and um, like the UK. Um, there has been more high-level talks bilaterally, but seems like the discussion in, in Europe, there's more um, discussions about how much China is actually a reliable country and also the uncertainties about its intentions. It's of course difficult to assess to what extent skepticism towards China has accelerated in the COVID-19, but um, there's clearly some policy shift in UK on China, and not just related to COVID-19, but also even in the discussions on 5G. So I, I think these developments do, does create new opportunities for Japan's diplomacy. Mm. Do you think that the economic downturn in Japan will impact how effective Japan can be in using its middle power status uh, in all of these different configurations to bolster those geopolitical ambitions? Well, one one thing um, interesting in your question, you, you described Japan as a middle power. Um, I think Yuka and I would, uh, that could be something we have another podcast on, what, what, what is a middle power? And we, we would probably put Japan slightly separate uh, from the much smaller countries. I think it, because of its size and its, its geoeconomic endowments and, and financial clout and so on, I think it has a, a, a special role to play. But that, that's for another, another podcast. Um, on the, uh, clearly the economic downturn um, is a problem in terms of Japan being able to, uh, to really um, flex its, um, its influence in the region, um, certainly over the, over the short term. And I think quite a lot rides actually for the region on Japan achieving um, as quick a bounce back um, as, as possible. One of, the, um, one of the lessons, I think, from the, from the 1990s, the problems in the 1990s, even though clearly, again, China was, was, um, was a lot smaller then and not growing, but Japan's domestic economic problems, they did have an impact on, on, on the region in all sorts of ways. Um, so in, in the short term, yes, and a stronger b b bounce back for, the, uh, for Japan is, is better, for the, um, better for the region. However, I think one of the interesting things will be over the next few years, at some point Abe, the Prime Minister Abe will leave office, is, is just how um, institutionalized and embedded uh, Japan's international activism is now, um, even without one day uh, the, the uh, Prime Minister Abe. Um, and my view is that actually the uh, institutional changes within Japan, um, the National Security Council, the National Security Secretariat, the Economics Unit that's just been uh, just been launched in April, actually in the in the NSS, 
um, institutional changes, plus um, changes within Asia. So, for example, uh, and the Asia-Pacific region, the uh, CPTPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, the successor to the TPP, of course, that uh, Japan was 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 played a big role in keeping alive after the US uh, left. There are some big developments, I think, under this uh, administration in Japan that I think will um, allow Japan to continue to project its influence uh, into Asia as one of these balancing powers, a builder of coalitions, um, sort of bringer together um, of countries, even even if there's a um, a longer downturn in Japan than than, than I'm expecting. Um, and even if the next administration has is of a different complexion to to that of the current one. Interesting. Maybe just for our final topic, I'd like to briefly touch upon an issue that's gotten a lot of attention lately. Um, obviously, in the with regards to the U.S.-China rivalry, and that is the issue of decoupling between uh, a country and China. Um, Robert, you already mentioned that China is Japan's largest export marker and significant trading partner. Um, but we've also seen, as we said in the start of this podcast, that um, the COVID pandemic has really highlighted supply chain vulnerabilities. I wanted to ask you both, to what extent do you think COVID will perhaps either kickstart or intensify Japan's efforts to decrease its supply chain dependency on China? And really, how, to what extent is decoupling between China and Japan even possible? So, I mean, the, the, the D word, uh, you hear it everywhere in, in all the C-suite, um, government, policymakers, everybody's talking about this because the pandemic has really focused attention on, uh, on economic security, on building resilience into supply chains, building uh, redundancy into supply chains. So all sorts of measures to, to increase um, e- economic security. Um, very important to note, however, that again, Japan, I think, was here slightly ahead of the curve. Um, Japan's and China's relationship, as we've discussed, has been bumpy for, for many years. It's had its good moments and its bad moments. Um, and after, in, in 2010, when Japan, uh, when China uh, temporarily stopped export of rare earths to, uh, to Japan, that was a real wake up call for policymakers and business in Japan. I think it was quite a shock realizing that China was actually not just a big market, but it also was able and willing to flex its geoeconomic uh, muscles. And after then, uh, there was increasingly, with, particularly in Japanese firms, there was uh, the discussion, the, 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 the strategy was the China plus one strategy. So you, you put your factory and your bits of your supply chain in China, but you also balance it. You try to mitigate your risks by um, also setting up factories somewhere, perhaps in Vietnam or Malaysia or, or somewhere in the region, just so you're, you've got your, um, your risks spread out. So Japan, in many senses, was, was ahead of the curve here. Um, the pandemic, as with many things, it's accelerating trends that are already underway. Um, and uh, you may have seen that uh, in the stimulus package, the government has earmarked some money, um, a couple of billion dollars, I think, to, um, to help Japanese companies do feasibility studies if they want to move out their production out, out, of, out of China. Um, in the round, however, um, my view is strongly that even though you may have some decoupling around the, the edges, so in strategic industries, particularly around the very, very high-tech uh, areas where there's concerns about security, uh, perhaps in, in medical uh, healthcare um, production, um, perhaps in food um, as well, there really isn't an alternative to China. There's only one China on the planet. 
if you're looking for an alternative to China in terms of uh, the the infrastructure, the logistics, the technological uh, capabilities, all of that, um, you're going to struggle to find uh, a, a, another um, site for supply chain, location, manufacturing, and so on, um, as as big uh, as China. So while I expect there will be some partial decoupling, I think that's now inevitable, particularly post pandemic. I think over the longer term, you're going you're not going to see a a full complete decoupling with with the economies of um, the U.S. allied economies on one side and China allied economies on the other. It's a risk, of course, because never say never in this world. Um, but I think full decoupling, China is just too embedded um, in the global economic system to to make that uh, to make that possible. Right. And, and Yuka, a follow up question for you then. Um, how do you think that if decoupling isn't the word that we're going to use and perhaps diversification of uh, Japan's supply chains are are going to be a little bit more realistic um, as a future policy option, how do you think that could be coordinated with Japan's Indo-Pacific policy agenda? I guess so. Robert did mention a lot of um, things, um, um, so I don't really have a lot to add. But perhaps maybe interesting development that I've seen happening is not just um, how to think about economic security and diversification, but maybe how Japan and um, the regional countries and beyond the, the Indo-Pacific region, including um, UK and Europe, could work multilaterally um, to think about this global supply chain and economic security together. And one of the area um, during COVID-19 pointed out was really the, the 5G discussions. Among the, the various strategic goods that Japan has um, increased diversification could be maybe the, semicon the semiconductors. And I would, I would be very interesting to see how some new groupings, for instance, proposed by the UK, like the D7, including the G7 and um, ROK India and Australia, will come up with new technology kind of alliances. And th those were, I would, I would think that um, some upcoming discussions that will happen. Fascinating. So I want to take this opportunity at the end of today's podcast to um, take a look at the excellent work that you're both doing and the upcoming work that we can look forward to following the IISS Japan Chair Program on. Um, Robert and Yuka, what are each the top focus areas of your research going to be in the next coming months? Well, thank you for that uh, question, Maya. Uh, this is a new a new program for the uh, for the institute. So we're, we're Yuka and I are obviously very excited to be to be part of it. Um, one of the things that uh, I'm going to be focusing on, uh, in particular, is Japan's economic statecraft. Now, this isn't new. Um, Japan's been pursuing economic statecraft uh, for many many years now. But under the particularly, I was thinking in the last sort of ten years or so. Um, this has really gained momentum, and as we've been discussing um, new inst institutions, new views about how Japan uses its geoeconomic endowments to to project its influence into the region, and and to and to and to particularly recently to support multilateralism uh, and and so on. So we're looking at um, uh, economic statecraft, the tools that Japan uses for economic statecraft, the offensive tools, the defensive tools. I'm trying to get a better hand, better sense of the of how Japan conceptualizes this, um, how Japan views uh, success um, in economic statecraft, and and how Japan thinks strategically about uh, about economic statecraft as well. Yuka. Um, so on defense and security um, side, we will be cooperating with the defense and analysis um, team, DMAT, and uh, we will we're trying to do like a comprehensive 
defense capabilities gap assessment. So in this conversation, we touched on various con um, constraints that Japan faces, like the legal constraints, constitutional constraints, and fiscal constraints, and political constraints. But at the same time, the regional security um, environment is continues to deteriorate. And for instance, the Asia-Pacific region is one of the fastest defense spending um, growing areas in the world. So, um, and also the pandemic just revealed that there are various ways that the regional deterrence will be challenged. Um, so we will be creating some different kinds of scenarios and analyze how Japan and in cooperation with its ally US and its regional partners, um, what, what are the gaps um, in the current military posture and capabilities in the region to um, meet the security challenges. Well, I'm very much looking forward to what I'm sure will be excellent work uh, on both of those topics. I want to thank you both for joining me today and sharing your insights on uh, Japan, its domestic politics, uh, economic situation, and its role in, in the wider rules-based international system. And thank you to our audience for listening as well. Please subscribe to Sound Strategic for more in-depth discussions just like this. And to keep up to date with the latest trends in international security and defense, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram. See you all next time.